three steps to mastering the art of negotiation on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. Accounting and bookkeeping mistakes destroy thousands of small businesses every single day. Bookkeeping doesn't have to be hard. Turn to the number one invoicing software for small businesses. Start for free today at servenomaster.com backslash FreshBooks. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author, Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. When I first started working online and working for myself and starting my own businesses, I really had no idea what my time was worth, what my efforts were worth, or how to price my business. And I made these mistakes that were so, they're just so common for new business owners, for new people in business that we don't know what our time is worth. And so we just guess at the pricing and we end up charging way too little for what we start delivering. My very first business, when I was a local marketing consultant, when I would help people rank their business on Google and get traffic and start to grow organically, I would charge, you know, what I thought was a fair rate, started at $250, $500. And then I would end up working for that project 40 hours a week. I had one client who paid me $1,000 a month and fully expected me to be available to him a full 40 hours a week. When you're bringing in a consultant or an expert, there's two expectations. There's expectation from the owner and there's expectation from the consultant. And throughout this journey, I took some really bad projects. I made a lot of mistakes and I learned a lot of things. Since then, I've really become a master of negotiation through a lot of trial and error and applying a lot of my networking and social engineering principles. The final negotiation I made when I was in the SEO business, local consulting business, and all the things I teach in Local Consulting Millionaire, when I was in that business, in that final negotiation, I was at a car dealership and I asked for $10,000 a month. At the time, my top client was $500 a month. So I asked for 20 times my top client and they negotiated me down to $2,000. We both walked away happy. It's an amazing experience and a lot of what I learned that day, I was testing my new principles and pushing the limits. And I want to take you through each of the pieces so you can have your own negotiation where you can double or quadruple what you're making. It's important to understand where the price comes from. There are three ways we generate the price. When we say, when someone says, what's an hour of your time worth? The first way we can generate that price, especially when we're entering a new market or starting a new business, is by looking at the competition. What do other people charge? What's the standard rate? What does a haircut cost? What does it cost for an hour of a time from a mechanic? This is how most businesses start. They assess what the competition is charging and then they adapt. Sometimes they charge more because they're a premium product and sometimes they charge less because they're trying to reach a larger market. Knowing what the rest of the market charges allows you to establish a price that fits in the market. Unfortunately, most consultants, most local consultants, most people in the internet marketing business, most people in our type of industries, we don't do that. We use one of the next two strategies. The second strategy for choosing price comes from customer expectation. What does the customer think it's going to cost? Now, I've been in meetings where a customer thought $3,000 of SEO services would cost $50 a month. I've been in meetings where people thought that my time was worth eight or 12 cents an hour. Now, I don't even pay the most outsourced of workers anything that low. That's insanity. When people super low ball you when you're in a meeting and someone's low balling you or offering a really low price 
they don't offer that low price because they don't value you. They offer that price because either they're pinging or they're negotiating. Now, ping is where you offer a super low price just to see how the other person reacts. And in negotiations, sometimes I do that, but we're not trying to go into a harsh or war negotiation. We're just trying to do big picture ideas right now. So you're in this meeting and you're trying to determine where the two people are coming from. And the other person, the person who wants to hire someone often says, well, this, my idea comes from what I can afford to spend or what I think this type of service should cost. And you can tell who you're dealing with because people at the low end of the market will price way too low, but people at the high end of the market will often pay four or five times over what other people are paying because they've only looked at expectation. They don't know what the market charges because they're the first person they've talked to. And then the third way we generate our price, the third way we can decide what our time is worth, what our service or product is worth, simply comes from within. This is what I feel like I'm worth. I feel like my book is worth $20. I feel like an hour of my time is $500. And it just comes from feel. Now, the problem with this is that it's so relative and it can be way too low or way too high because it's not anchored in reality. It's simply anchored in your sense of self-confidence. It's anchored in your self-confidence. So when your self-confidence is low, your price is low. When your self-confidence is high, your price is high. And you're in a tough situation. And your clients are in a tough situation because they never know what you're going to charge. For example, you have a morning meeting. You really need that money. So you take a $500 a month offer. Now you've got that $500 a month. You go to the second meeting, you go, oh, no, the price is $5,000 a month. Your confidence or your financial position really changes the price because it's based on how you're feeling and how your business stuff is going. And that's really important to understand. So these are kind of our baselines for where our price comes from. Now, there's some common mistakes that come from pricing and we price our uh, our pricing model. We don't have a really fixed structure. The first mistake that we make is that when we don't have enough confidence or when we're in a tough financial situation, we price too low. Oh, I really need this job. I've got this bill chasing me. I've got to pay my bills. When that affects your pricing, you'll price yourself too low. And what will happen is you have a client who now assumes that's your price and that'll be what you're locked at forever with that client. Number two, they won't respect you as much when you price yourself too low and you put yourself in this bit of a bind. And if you accept that price, you kind of negotiate and agree to that price to them that the price is the price you've made an agreement. For you, you suddenly realize, okay, I got past that one bill, but now it's not really enough the amount of time I'm putting in you realize over the course of the next month that you sold your time for $2 an hour and you're stuck and you don't know what to do. And the only way to make more money is to fire that client and move on up because it's very, very hard to renegotiate. It's hard to renegotiate and say, oh, I meant double what I said. Believe me, when a client comes to me or when a a vendor comes to me and says, oh, actually, I underbid myself, I say, there's no way I'm paying double. It's just not how it works because we create an expectation. The second mistake is more common, I find, surprisingly common, which is where you price too high. We have so much pride. And you say, this is what my time is worth. And I've seen people in markets who are entering a market. They say, oh, I want to sell coaching for $700 an hour. And I go, well, the top business, the top competitor who has respect and testimony has been in business for years only charges $200 an hour. And they go, well, my time is worth three times more than that. And that's where pride and kind of your self-perception will destroy you. You price yourself out of the market and you become someone who will always struggle. I know people that they've set a price for something, they won't change it no matter what, and they go out of business. I was actually watching someone do this on television last week, probably why I got the idea for this episode. I was watching this TV show about um, a billionaire who buys stuff from small businesses to help them grow, and he went to an art gallery, and the art gallery had actually never sold a piece. One person had bought a piece from the gallery for, I think, 
something crazy like 120 or $200,000 or something. And then said, just keep it here. I want to donate this to the arts to keep this art studio, your gallery open, keep your gallery running. And that was more than two years ago. And in that time, the guy has never sold a piece, not a single piece. And every time someone comes in, they say, what's the price? And he says the price is different things. And they're always about four times what you could buy in any other gallery. And his worry is that if he lowers the price, it will devalue the art piece that someone else bought. Now, there are a couple of problems with this. The first is that he's basing his price line, his entire pricing on a donation. The person wasn't a real customer, were they? They bought the product and said, keep it here. This is a donation. This is me doing something charitable for the arts. That's not someone who is thinking about the long-term investment. The second thing is, what good is a piece of art when you say, oh, this is a famous artist. Really, what else did he make? Oh, this is the only painting he ever made. No one thinks that's going to have value. The price, the value will only go down. It will never go up because the artist's name has no worth. Artist hasn't done enough or hasn't sold any other pieces. This guy's only made of this particular type of art. He made five pieces. He hasn't made a piece in years because he has no money to do more art. But he's so caught up in, I can't hurt the value of this other piece. And I bet if you actually ask the person who bought it, they wouldn't care because the value of your art goes up when you've sold a lot of pieces, selling art increases the value far more than simply pricing it. With most art, the artist isn't the one who makes all the money. There are initial buyers who pay five, 10 or $20. I'm sure there are people who paid $20 for Picasso for one of his first paintings so that he could make his bills. And then that painting after he died was worth millions. But it takes a long time for paintings to really shoot up in value. You very rarely hear about a painting by a living artist being worth hundreds, thousands or millions of dollars. Art over time goes up in value. It's one of those things that, especially when the artist dies, because then you go, okay, now we know they're not going to make any more paintings. We know the number of paintings that exist by this artist or the number of sculptures, whatever. So you can put in the situation where you decide that your value, your self-perception is so high. And I see this in other markets. I see this in house pricing where I live. People will have a piece of land or a house and they'll set a price on it. And they'll wait however long it takes to get that price. And the house, of course, over time, no one's living in it. They built this house on speculation. The house is getting destroyed by being empty. It's out in the weather. There's no one in it. And over time, the house is going down in value, not up. See, a lot of the value of a house, a brand new house, is you know, the fixtures and the wiring and all those things. But the way we do that stuff changes. When I was in high school, we saw this house that was built and it had network cables in every wall. So next to every outlet, there was Cat5 cable, which is the old uh, cable you would plug into a router, plug into the back of your PlayStation, or plug into the back of your computer. But now, having that isn't that much of a feature because everyone's house, they're more built around Wi-Fi, so people are more interested in smart house cabling. So some of the features you do that are cutting edge, they kind of push up the value of a house a little bit, make it seem cutting edge and cool. After two or three years, they don't seem that way. And I see these houses, and you know, you approach the owner and say, hey, I'm actually just looking to rent a house for six months. And this is a person who, the house has been empty for a year and a half. They go, oh, there's no way I would rent it. I'm here to sell the house. And I see you have a house that every day loses you money. But people have this perception. They go, oh, no, I only want the big score. And they have massive financial problems. They end up losing the house a lot. Or they have children who get very sick and they can't afford it for their medical bills. They have all these problems. And they go, I'm not lowering them. I'll do anything to help my kid except for lower the price of this house. And one of the neighborhoods where I saw this, it was a development and probably two thirds of the house, houses were empty. So living there would be kind of like you're living in this old West ghost town, with all these empty houses. And it's crazy because you walk into every single house and every single one of them is priced 20 to 30% over the market. 
because they think this neighborhood's going to be amazing. They're ignoring what the market says. If no one's willing to pay the price, you might need to change it. Now, the danger again is to go, oh no, if my price is too high, I got to go super low. You have to find something in between. The third mistake that causes us to price poorly is desperation, right? You're like, I really need that money. My price is built upon what my next bill is going to be. What's your price? Same with my mortgage. And the other direction, of course, is pride. What's your price? Well, I think I'm the best. You can work your way up. My prices are very, very high. To hire me to work on a project with someone is very expensive. Now, different clients pay different amounts of money. My very first clients who worked with me three, four, five years ago for a ghostwriting project, well, they get, they have a much lower rate than people that I start working with now because the price has gone up over time. Now, my price with them, since we started, has doubled over the course of about a dozen or 15 projects. But for new clients, I've now established a price in the market and I can raise it a little bit, a little bit. So how can you raise the price? How can you get that higher price? Once you've started, entered a market and when you're in a negotiation, we kind of have some ideas. We've talked about some negativity. So let's talk about some positivity. And the first thing is really understanding the power of silence. Every time I enter a negotiation, I use my law of doubling and then I enter the, use the power of silence. My law of doubling is that I always ask for double what I asked for in the last negotiation, or I at least ask for double what another client is paying me. Now, it's very important to understand why this is happening. The first is that if someone completely balks at double your normal price or at double what other people are paying, that means that down the line, there's never going to be room for growth or that they can barely afford you. Most people who enter negotiation with me are able to push the price down or to negotiate some things down. And that's where the silence is. See, when you're in that moment of silence, when you say, oh, the price is $10,000 a month, you're going to wait for their reaction. And you enter this game and he talks about it extensively in the seven habits of highly effective people. There's a lot of talk in there about uh, the power of silence and how the best salesman you can hire is one who can sit there on the phone in absolute silence, waiting for the other person to speak. Because in most negotiations, in fact, in nearly all of them, whoever speaks first loses. And this is why when someone says a price to you and you think it's too high, just sit there silently and eventually they'll negotiate against themselves. And when they negotiate against themselves, you don't have to do anything. They'll lower the price. And I've negotiated against myself before in the past. I'm not perfect. I've certainly done certain things. But you want to create a price that's higher than you normally charge. If you just ask the lowest rate you have or the lowest rate you can afford to take, what you've done is taken the negotiation and flushed it down the toilet. You said, hey, uh, you thought you were in a negotiation. Guess what? My first offer is one where there's no wiggle room. You know, I'm CarMax. It's no haggle. Now, sure, when you're buying a car, you know, it's nice to know the price is the price. That's actually the last place I bought a car from, golly, like 10 years ago almost now. But when you have no wiggle room, you're in real trouble. The reason I ask for double is so that if they push me down and cut my price in half, which is often people's open negotiating position, I'm still okay. When those people cut down my price from $10,000 a month to $2,000 a month, they cut 80% off the price, what they thought of as my price. But I ended up getting a price that was 400% more than I was making already. They quadrupled my normal rate. It's a win for both of us. And it came about by sitting there silently for several minutes. You want to give people wiggle room when you're negotiating. That's why you have to price high so that they can push it down. And you can have a couple of uh, different elements when you're doing a negotiation, whether it's for services or coaching or for software, when you're first starting out or products and things like that. And some of the tools you can have are, number one, your flat fee. So you can either charge a deposit, though this is what it costs to get started with me. I was talking to someone the other day who runs a really interesting outsourcing business. And I thought it was very interesting. I'm probably going to uh, start working with him extensively. He might even become the show's primary sponsor. And he charges a flat fee 
of $3.99 to get started with him. It's where they assess your business, decide what you need, that kind of stuff, and prepare. There's a phase when you hire an outsourcer where there's the training period, and this covers that. And I thought that was very interesting because that's an area where you can negotiate. In fact, his prices are probably going to change in the next year or the next month, actually, when the new year starts. And we were talking about that. And so that's the first thing you have. Then you have your recurring fee or your percentage, depending upon how you're doing. I'll say, this is what it costs to start. This is what it costs monthly. This is what it costs hourly. Or that could be, get a flat fee. Oh, I'm $7 an hour. I'm $38 an hour. Or it's a percentage. So we have a couple of pieces. I like to have several pieces to a project. I say, oh, here's what it costs to start working with me. And here's what I ask for as far as a percentage. And they often ask for numbers that are way higher than I normally do. And the reason I have two numbers, especially the reason I do a lot of percentages in my deals, is because some people can afford me and some can't. People that can afford my higher number will get a higher, pay a higher deposit to have a lower percentage. They're going to pay more now so that they make more later. But if someone else is like, oh, I can't really afford your rate. So they'll do a much lower percentage. They'll do a much lower flat fee. And often their percentage will be much higher. So for example, you might do a deal where it's a $500 deposit and then 50% of profit you get. Or in the other way, you might get a $5,000 deposit and only 10, 15, or 20% of the profit. When you're doing a six or seven figure deal, that's a huge difference down the line. So you have to factor in what people can afford now versus what you think it's going to make later. The more room you have to negotiate where you can push one number down to push the other one up, having two numbers is very effective that way. You can also ask them to put in place reward bonuses. Like, okay, I understand that you have a limited budget right now, but when I hit certain targets, I want to get rewarded in certain ways. Sometimes another thing that I use is the idea of recouping your investment, which comes from, I learned this from the music business, which is where you, to make an album, they'll give you like $100,000, but then the first $100,000 of profits from that, pro- that album, you don't get. That's where the record company, they keep that to cover the cost of creating the album. So people, you know, they think, oh, I got paid a bunch of money to make them. No, you didn't. It comes out of your own sales. But they don't see that. That's unfortunate, but that's, that's how that type of deal works. So sometimes to renegotiate, I'll say, okay, it's a big deposit, but then you get to recoup it out of the initial profits. So if I say, oh, it's a $500 deposit, the first $500 in profits, we don't split, you keep, and then you start to pay me. I don't often do that. That's usually something you can do. That's a tool you can use when you have a flat fee and a percentage and you use that tool when you can tell the person can't really afford you or you're a little bit above what they can do. Now, I used to not charge a flat fee for a lot of my product creation deals and a lot of my other things. I used to just be percentage. And what I learned when you're getting a percentage is that sometimes you'll do all this work, you'll make the product, you'll write the copy, you'll do everything, and then the person decides not to do anything with it. One of the people that I used to work with, I made, uh, I spent a year, I built several really high ticket, very valuable, really high quality products for them. And then uh, they decided they didn't want to release them. I put in all this effort. And over time, I eventually sold each of those products to other people, but it's a huge loss. So I learned my lesson and then someone else I did a negotiation with, they said, well, to put me on retainer, to have me on your team, to have me make products when you need them, you have to pay me a large five figure flat fee. And this person sent me a huge amount of money, one of the largest PayPal transactions I've ever done. And I said, that's to make sure that when we, that you actually are motivated to release the product so you can make back your investment. That person then proceeded to never speak to me again. It's been about three and a half years. Every six months I send them a message saying, hey, you paid for first rights to anything I make in this niche. 
I haven't heard from you in several years. Let me know if you want any of the products I've made, if you want anything in this space. I haven't made anything new in that space, but the person paid for first rights to anything I make in that particular niche, and I honor that. But it's amazing to me. Someone will, will pay a huge amount of money and then disappear, but that's why I do that. I've learned that you kind of have to have a mix or people won't do anything with it. You need to create enough pressure that they're motivated to make their money back, to make back their investment. And sometimes I use the recoup thing mostly because either they're never going to release the product and they're totally going to screw it up or they'll do well enough that they'll recoup the original cost of my deposit very quickly and I'll make a ton more money. So it's really kind of a way of hedging your bet because it's not a huge thing. The deposit is really a way of saying you've got to release this or you're going to take a loss. It's kind of like a punishment clause. It's one of the reasons I have that there. I mean, also, it's because of my initial time investment. So I work first when I make a product or I write the copy for someone, I'm doing that before they start their work. These are just some of the things to think about when you're working on your negotiations. And these are three critical steps you can use to massively raise what people pay you every time you step into the negotiation chamber. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you Tuesday. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Serve No Master podcast. To find out how you can get a free copy of my new book, head over to servenomaster.com backslash podcasts right now.